Hello, and welcome to another episode of the 94 NBA podcast. I'm one of your hosts, as always, Eric Spiropoulos. You can follow me on Twitter at Eric Spiros MBA. And if you follow me on Twitter, you will uh, discover that I'm covering the Brooklyn Nets now for Hoops Habits. I wrote three articles this past week, um, one on Rondé Hollis-Jefferson, one on what the Nets could do at the trade deadline, and then one um, on Joe Harris's underrated value that he provides. Um, but enough about me. We're back. Um, it's been, I think, two weeks since our last episode, and we are back with midseason awards. Um, Corbin, how are you doing tonight? You know, I'm doing good, Eric. Happy to kind of get down to this. Can't wait till trade deadline. That's kind of where I feel most alive this time of year. But, uh, you know, we'll survive until then. Yeah. Um, so we before we got on air, we had heard that Kenneth Free was being bought out. Not that it's significant, but Wodge has recently followed up with a tweet saying that he has officially agreed to the buyout and it's going to clear the way for him to sign with the Rockets. So I guess they already knew that was happening. Um, Tampering! Really, <laughs> no need for analysis on that, though, because <laughs> we have – Mid-season awards. So we're kind of, you know, most, I think every team has played more than 41 games and we're, we're I think, a week past the actual official mid-season point. Um, but it's time to update our awards. Obviously, we did a quarter season awards. Um, so you can listen to that podcast. It was like a month or two ago or something like that. And we're back. Corbin, what award do you want to start off with? You know, we let's just go straight for the big fish. Let's just go for MVP. Let's like get that the, I like whole conversation. <laughs> I appreciate it. Let's do it. Um, all right, so I created a top three for all of our awards, but I think for MVP, it's it's honestly one of the awards that is almost o- already seemingly at a two-man race for now. Obviously, player candidates can come back into the race, but given how you know the Pelicans are still struggling with their record, though they played a little bit better recently, LeBron got hurt, you know the Warriors kind of cancel each other out regardless of if they stayed healthy. And the way that Harden has been out of his mind and the Giannis and the Bucks have continued to win, it's almost, at least in terms of the media perspective, I think, and if you ask most people, they have Giannis and Harden one and two in some order. Um, so that's definitely you know, the vibe that I get from the MVP um, race at the moment at the halfway point. So choosing between Giannis and Harden, um, it's, it's, it's hard um, because – and what the funniest thing about this award is, at least, you know, because MVP is the one that always has the strongest, like, narratives with it um, because it's the most important award. Um, Harden, back in 16-17, was the guy who had really good stats and team success, um, and he was competing with Russell Westbrook, who had the more eye-popping stats, I guess you'd call them, but on a worse team, um, a mediocre, you know, upper 40s win team. What's so ironic is that now Harden is in that rust spot where he has the more eye-opening stats, 35-plus points per game. You know, he has the narrative of carrying a bad supporting cast, but he's on the team that has the worst record compared to Giannis, who has a lot of awesome stats himself, but also is on a really, really you know good team. A team that might win 60 games is surely going to win upper 50s. So it's it's so funny how it's like a, a reverse for, for Harden, who of course has had to deal with so many different you know narratives and situations in all his MVP contention years. Um, so I'm sticking with Giannis for right now. Um, I think just I, I just tend to lean towards the guy who has the combination of the team success. And, you know, both the great traditional and great advanced stats. I, I'm totally fine. And, you know, I'm downright, you know, totally accepting of those who have Harden for the award um, because the MVP is one of those awards where people just define it differently. I mean, you look at what Harden's doing carrying that supporting cast. Um, and, you know, he has undoubtedly had the worst supporting cast of any of, you know, 
especially compared to Giannis and probably, you know, even compared to a guy like AD, I think Harden's had a worse supporting cast given all their injuries Whoa. so far. Um, okay. I mean, both teams, the Pelicans and Rockets are very similar to they're really great offensively and terrible defensively. And they've both had a bunch of injuries. Um, so maybe it's more hit or miss there, but, uh, some people just look at that and say, wow, this guy is just straight up the most valuable player. He's look what he's doing on a night to night basis to carry these this, this supporting cast that has, you know, two way players and if G League call ups and, and rookies and second year players and 36 year olds in the nay and things like that. Um, I also I, 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 I totally see that view, um, but I'm just going to stick with what I've kind of always felt for MVP. Um, you know, I felt Harden was the MVP in 16-17. I'm going with Giannis this year. The combination of the stats and the team success. Sure, he's had a better supporting cast, but he has the stats and he has the value. So I'm going to stick with Giannis, though. I really, it's really a toss-up, and I, I totally understand people that have Harden or me. I, yeah, I guess I only see those two as the top candidates. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I originally had it was pretty much the same race. I forgot who I had second. I was trying to find my notes from the previous um, MVP race we had. I know I had Paul George really high. Um, right now he's on third and kind of falling there. And, and Giannis is up top for me. Oh, LeBron, that's what it was. Um, but LeBron's been out. So can't really give an MVP to someone who's really been injured and out for, you know, a, a, a growing part of the season. Although he is due to come back next week. Great news there. Yeah, Giannis is, is, is at the top for me for pretty much the same reason. I mean, that as well as with James Harden putting up just this epic run. What, I think he's averaged 40 points the last 20 games. Um, just insane amount of production. Offensive end, a great, you know, just – a just great load. Can't really emphasize that enough. But I don't like, and I guess this is because I'm still kind of stinging from the 2017 MVP race and all the arguments and narratives and everything there about who had the best cast and who did more with less and yada, yada, yada. And so I'm very, I mean, and this is for the, the hardened stands out there. People were all up in my mentions, all up arguing up and down about how um, it shouldn't matter that Russell Westbrook's cast that year was worse or better than Harden's because, you know, who cares, yada, yada, this and that, narrative, all this good stuff. So I'm I'm buying into that less because it's almost funny. Not that you're that guy, but that there are people who now all of a sudden, because it's their guy, have kind of turned the tables on, oh, look at look at all the players he's playing without, you know, without this guy and without that guy. Like, yeah, I get it. But, like, at the same time, I don't because you were the same people, like, knocking out the argument not even a year and a half ago. But I think that actually brings an interesting question. I kind of wanted to kind of throw this on you, and, you know, I, I, I forgive me for it. Um, as far as the worst supporting cast for a possible MVP, I'm comparing Russell Westbrook's 2017 roster, and I haven't looked at it either. I'm just kind of just thought this up, to what James Harden has had to work with this season. Who do you think had, had a worse one? You know, that's really tough. I'm actually going to pull up the rosters right now. Um, Doing the same, I, yeah. I really do want to take a look at it. Um, and I, I just remember how bad that Thunder roster was. Um, so yes. They, they, so I'm totally – and I'm also going to um, make sure I sort it by minutes play because they're – you know. So yeah. Westbrook had Adams, who is better now than he was two years ago. Oh, he had great. Roberson. I think this was Roberson's first year where he kind of cemented himself as like, oh, my God, this guy's – insane defensively um but again provides no offensive value this is again before oladipo's breakout um this is a year when oladipo averaged 16 points 4.3 rebounds 2.6 assists shot 36 percent from three you know he was a solid but you know not spectacular in any way shape or form um 
Enos Cantor was on this team as a strictly backup big who, you know, they didn't play. He only played 21 minutes a game because, you know, defensive limitations. This is the team that traded for Taj Gibson. They had him for 23 games. Um, a team that, you know, miscast Amonis Sabonis as a stretch four. Um, he was attempting two three-pointers per game, which is just not what he was meant to do, obviously, because we've seen him now beasting and feasting in the post for the Pacers and being a six-man-of-the-year candidate. Um, Doug McDermott, again, they had for 22 games. This is Jeremy Grant they had for a, a full season, but, again, was not close to Jeremy Grant the way he is now but on both ends of the floor. But really what stands out and what, team, what people and fans remember this team the most for was the absolutely atrocious backup point guard play. Thank you. Um, that's Let's what they were it. known for. They had, he had players around him in the starting lineup and he had players that could do things in their own role. Like Enos Cantor averaging 14 points, seven rebounds is solid in his own role. Of course he gives up even more on the defensive end, but it was really when Russ went off the floor and they brought in, you know, a Samaj Kristen, um, a Norris Cole. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, Cameron Payne they had for 20 games. Like, that is that is how people remember that team, and that's why they remember it so vividly that they were so bad because the point guards or any any guards really who would get on the floor when Russ went off uh, were just terrible. Um, and they didn't really stagger Oladipo and Westbrook enough. I think they should have done that more in the regular season to maybe make up for that a little bit. Um, but even then, back then, Oladipo was not really ready for the for that role of being the primary guy, you know, for countless possessions like he is now because, again, he took a, a big step. Um, so then you look at this year's Rockets roster, um, healthy on paper, the, the team is fine, like supporting cast wise, but really Eric Gordon has been uh, not an exaggeration. One of the worst rotation players in the league when he's been healthy. I mean, you can't hit his threes. Um, he doesn't really provide playmaking and his defense is not as, has not been as good as last season. Chris Paul, when he was playing, um, he's missed basically almost half the year. Um, he was having the worst year of his career down to 15.6 points per game, you know, eight assists, but only shooting 35% on threes, um, turning the ball over at a career high rate. Um, Clint Capella was having, is having the best offensive season of his career. You know, he's eye opening, you know, basically averaging 18 points and 12 and a half rebounds per game, but his defense has slipped. Um, I think only people who have watched a lot of Rockets games will tell you that he has not been anywhere as close to a good switch defender, which is why they have stopped switching everything. They've actually done, you know, a little bit of adjustments to the defensive scheme, but he also isn't just, you know, the defensive rebounding hasn't been as good for him and his, his ability to hang with guards and, you know, defend the rim hasn't been as elite. Um, and then beyond that, you're looking at guys who cannot do anything unless they get the ball caught in the right shooting in their shooting motion, basically. Um, you know, they sign Austin Rivers and he's playing since, by the way, I didn't notice until just now since Austin Rivers joined the team, uh, he's played in 12 games. He's playing 38 minutes a game. <laughs> wow. That is, okay. that is a, a, a bad sign. Um, but he's actually That's been true. solid. I mean, he's shooting 39% on threes, which is a, way higher than he was earlier this season. But really, basically, you're talking about Harden's supporting cast over the past um, uh, three weeks to basically the past month, I guess it's been, since Chris Paul got hurt. Um, yeah. And so you're looking at without – Paul and Gordon has missed the past eight games and just got back. Without those two, you're looking at a rotation that has Harden, uh, Rivers, P.J. Tucker, um, Daniel House, who can't play anymore because he, he reached his two-day limit um, of NBA service day, so he's down in the G League. James Ennis, who, mich- who missed a couple of those games as well. Gerald Green, um, Gary Clark, um, and then Nene, who can play 13 minutes a game. And then Brandon Knight, you know, barely seeing the floor when he can. So, if we're looking at it from the perspective of over this past month versus the 16-17 Thunder, I'd say Harden had the worst supporting cast um, 
than Russ, Russ did for that season. I think when you when we finish this year, we'll look back on it. If Paul and Gordon can stay healthy and play a little bit better than they did early in the season, then Harden, you know, has Chris Paul and Eric Gordon alongside him and can kind of take a chill pill. But if they come back and still struggle, or if they don't come back, or they you know they come back and get hurt again, and you know Capella's still out for another five weeks at least. Um, I think you know if things continue anywhere close to this rate, then Harden I think has the worst supporting cast. But if Paul and Gordon come back, because Gordon already came back and Paul is expected back next week, if they can come back and stay healthy and improve on their play from earlier in the season, then I think it's more of a you know toss up. You know maybe Russ had the had the worst supporting cast, but over the past month it's definitely I think it's definitely been Harden given the the lack of ball handlers he's got around him. He has to do everything. That that was a very I, I like comprehensive breakdown of the two. I, I only disagree because of the fact that in the end you're going to have Gordon and Paul waiting in the wings. But for this current stretch, like you said, if we're just evaluating the stretch versus season, then that makes a lot of sense to me because you're right. He doesn't create just a ton. Uh, okay, wow. Way to break that down. You got a little bit of extra value, guys. <laughs> listen, look at that. A little bit of history for you. Recent. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, all right. So, who – so you stick, You said you're sticking with Giannis? So, I'm sticking with Giannis. He's just had, mm-hmm. a, 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 like, a monster stretch of games – even recently, still is, and I think this is only helping him to get more rest, which he's going to need for the playoffs coming up. But it's been more consistent. Um, Harden has come alive, especially the last month, last month and a half. But Giannis has had more consistent production. Um, I would definitely keep an eye out for uh, um, Paul George. Not that I think he's going to make it, but like he's tailed off quite a bit. But as far as just playing while well, he was, he was on a tear. I still want to give the dude some respect. And then, so right now it would be for me, Giannis. James Harden, and a tie between Steph Curry and Paul George. I try not to mention Steph Curry, but I can't. So where are you on Anthony Davis as an MVP candidate, given the incredible numbers that he's posting and the value that he naturally brings to the team? How do you kind of balance that? This is something I think about, too, with all these awards, but especially with MVP and things like defensive player and, you know, a little bit six man, but definitely MVP. It's like, how do you balance? And this also for like all-star consideration, uh, how do you balance like the stats that these guys are putting up versus the winning? Because there's so many, like I, like I said, I think Harden, especially over the past month has had a worse supporting cast than AD. Um, AD, obviously his team has missed Miritich for a lot and has missed Alfred Payton for a lot, which again, you know, if your team is struggling, missing Alfred Payton, you did a bad job, I guess, you know, constructing things. Um, but that's <laughs> a whole other issue. Um, but he, AD has had injuries around him. Um, but Harden has ha- has not had a player like Drew Holiday. At, or even when Chris Paul was playing, he was not as good as Drew Holiday has been so far this season. Um, Whoa. Even last year? Or are you talking no, about this year? This year only. Last year. Oh, Paul, okay. I was, know, I was, yeah. Okay, no, cool. Yeah. 2018-19 Holiday. Versus 2018-19 Paul, which is only like 25 close. games. Yeah, Holiday's been better. Um, and you know, the Pelicans are just are just struggling. I mean, I think they're a couple games under 500 still. Um, and you know, there are the numbers where it's like 80s has a great net rating, but you know, they have a better net rating. And Drew Holiday's a better net rating, and they're actually really good when Drew Holiday's on the floor without AD. But they're not that good when when AD's on the floor without Drew Holiday. So there's so many numbers to distinguish. It's so hard to separate. Yeah, the Pelicans are 21 and 24 and down by 16 and a half in Portland. So they're probably be four games under, you know, where do you because I, I think I still have AD as the third candidate, the third person in my ballot. Um, wow. Maybe tied maybe tie with a guy like Steph Curry. Um, 
but it's just where do you sit on the whole, you know, balancing AD's value and statistical production versus just the overall team success? Okay, so I mean, I look at it differently. I definitely knew some of the on-off numbers with um with uh, Drew Holiday on and off, and, and you kind of see in the play, it's almost weird as far as how he's impacted there. And, and I take into account the fact that Davis is averaging career high in points, career high in rebounds, career high in assists, minutes, all of that. Just a vast improvement playing a, a ton. But here's my thing. I, I would want, and I think the, the lowest I've bent, and I've only been doing like actual like serious MVP considerations and lists for let's say four or five Five or six years now. I'll be a little more, more, um, a little more. Uh, what's it called? Widespread in that one. But I give serious consideration to a team that, like, in my opinion, is going to make the playoffs. And okay, like Russell was the first MVP candidate who I stand and, and, and cheered so hard for. That was like not a lock for like one of the top, you know, two seeds of whatever conference they represented. Anthony Davis has been playing amazing. Anthony Davis on a team that, while it, it, it's it's not, I mean, it's not ideal, the people around him, I think he would do for a few more shooters. Um, Elver Payton, as you said, has missed a lot of time. Drew Holiday has been playing well, but, I mean, if he's your second best player, I don't really know. I guess we see how far they are. You know what I mean? Like, he's a very productive player, but I, I just wouldn't have him as my second banana just, just on a team that has, like, serious playoff, or not playoff, but, like, deep playoff aspirations. But... I, I just, with all that production, I, I just expect a little more. I mean, at least be even on the precipice. And yes, it's a tough Western Conference, so it's hard to really gauge that as far as, like, okay, they're sitting, let's say, I, I forget the standings right now. What are they, 11th? I got I got uh, They're 12th in the conference. 12th. Okay, they're 12th in the conference. So, and, and that really doesn't, don't buy a whole lot of stock in that because most of those spots are, like, separated by only, like, four or five games. So it's not that big a deal. But they're going to, like you said, be 400 games under 500 now. I start to take the record into perspective after a certain point in time. And I think that where we are in time, a little more than halfway through the season, and they're not in the playoff spot, but not because of, not because of, oh, a couple games out, but just up and down play. You know what I mean? Like, on the one hand that I penalize, that I give Anthony Davis credit for playing with, the supporting cast, it is a stronger supporting class. I mean, it, it, it is. If you have a Nikola, you have a, oh, my gosh, got Nikola Pekovic <laughs> set up there. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but, no, you have um, you have Julius Randle. You have Drew Holiday. You have Nikola Miritich. You have players that, I mean, that are healthy that are playing well for you. So I don't really see – I'm running out of excuses to Gary Anthony Davis, even though he's producing at such a great level, you know? Yeah, so here's the thing. If your team – if you don't make the playoffs and if your team's, you know, five, under 500, you know, who knows? Maybe they finish the year at 500 or a couple games below or a couple games above. You, you just can't win MVP. So I don't think anyone – if you asked anyone, I don't think they, anyone would have Anthony Davis as their actual MVP um, front runner at, at the midseason point. Um, I think it does kind of shed some light on, on the, maybe the difficulties of a big man carrying a team versus, you know, a guard or, you know, in Giannis's, in Giannis's case, like a primary ball handler because he's not obviously not a, you know, a prototypical guard, but he has the ball in his hands, Harden has the ball in his hands. AD is a big man who needs guards to kind of set him up. Um, they've been missing their point guard in Alfred Payton, which has put a lot more pressure on Drew Holiday, which kind of can hurt his play sometimes. Um, 
Miritich has been out, so obviously, you know, the floor spacing has been cramped. They have no wings on this roster. Um, Etwan Moore, who was kind of filling in as their wing, um, has been, you know, pretty hit or miss recently after a really hot start, so that's killing them as well. Randall is putting up nice offensive numbers, but, you know, from the number, from all the advanced numbers and basically all the people I follow, all the Pelicans people I follow on Twitter, he's been a train wreck defensively, and the team has been a train wreck defensively. Uh, these, actually, these two, ironically, are, are the Rockets are 25th defensively and the Pelicans are 26th, and then the Pelicans are third offensively and the Rockets are fourth. So they're basically in the same area. Um, one thing that is funny, though, or not really funny, I guess kind of sad, um, uh-huh. is that the Pelicans um, actually have the 11th best net rating in the league, um, but they're dead last. They're 30th in their win differential, which basically means that they've been really, really bad. In, wow. Crunch time, which we talked. I think we had we had a question, a mailbag question, a couple weeks ago that talked about should AD get more blame for the team's struggles down the stretch. And we, I looked up the numbers, and he was, you know, below his season averages in terms of shooting percentages in the crunch time. But also, other players were struggling a lot in crunch time. So that's one thing. Where if they had pulled out a couple of extra close wins and were maybe around 500 at this point. Um, you know, then maybe it makes it easier to make a cast a, a case for AD. But yeah, right now, um, this has been a long-winded discussion. But right hey, now, it's the MVP. Yeah. I get it. <laughs> Giannis, Harden, and then I mean, I, I'm not sure if I should even have AD or Curry. I mean, I guess they're kind of in a in a, a tie right now because obviously Curry yeah, is on the Curry Warriors. And, out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, I'll stick with AD for now. Um, and maybe that's just me banking on the fact that they'll get a little, you know, with health, they'll be a little bit better moving forward and then it makes easier case to, to put him as, as the uh, third person in this, in this award. Curry's missed time, obviously has a great supporting cast. Um, and I'm just not really there as Paul uh, for Paul George as an MVP, even though I, I do have him for another award, which is a spoiler, of course. There it is. That's the leadoff. In fact, I'm going to do another uh, spoiler. Well, not, that's not a spoiler. That sucks. <laughs> Dang, I messed up the transition. I was going to do a clever transition and say, what award are you nominating Paul George for? Let's uh, delve into that one. <laughs> well, obviously, that is the uh, rookie of the year. No, it's uh, defensive, <laughs> defensive player of the year. Um, my top three right now, um, and there are a lot of candidates here. Like, I, I don't think Giannis is getting enough buzz as a potential candidate, though I don't think he should be a front runner or win the award i think he's definitely up there in terms of his candidacy but my top three right now i've got paul george leading the way um rudy gobert has made a, a, a really um hard push for that second spot and arguably the first spot um which i'll get to in a moment and then i have miles turner as my third my third place finisher at the moment um so paul george's case he's the best defender on this well, the second best defense um he's been the best perimeter defender, I <laughs> like think, this season. <laughs> um, and, you know, the defense is, uh, last I checked, 4.6 points per 100 possessions better with him on the floor, which is a, which is a strong mark. Um, he's 10th in defensive real plus minus, which, you know, might not seem incredible, but he's the best among small forwards slash wings um, because that metric really does lead to a lot of big men being up there. Um, so that's his case. Now, one thing I will say, a warning sign for Paul George or or for the t- Thunder in general is that their defense has fallen off a cliff in the past two weeks. Um, they have they're one in five. I tweeted this out last night after they lost to the Lakers. They're one in five um, in their last six games, and in that stretch, which has been basically a two week stretch, they're 28th in the league defensively, um, and that is how. Rudy Gobert and the Jazz have actually taken up the top spot as the best ranked defense in the league. Um, so you look at Gobert, 
who's the anchor of that top-ranked defense. He's first in defensive real plus-minus. The defense is 3.8 points per 100 possessions, better with him on the floor. And, of course, the reputation that he brings as, you know, he's going to he's gonna deter guards from driving to the rim, you know, strong rim protector. Um, even though, I, last I checked, teams are actually shooting higher around a higher percentage around the rim when Gobert's on the floor, though they take less shots at the rim. It's an interesting kind of fluky number because he's always been in the negative um, on that side um, in previous years. But Gobert, I think, has a serious case because he's on the best. De- he's the best defensive player on the best defense and he has strong defensive metrics and he has that reputation. So he's he's jumped um, up my list to number two. And I'm still sticking with Miles Turner for number three because he also has strong defensive metrics. The, the Pacers have the third best defense in the league. Um, and, you know, there, he has some other strong metrics, like when he's on the floor, opposing teams shoot 7.7% worse at the rim. Um, he's sixth in defensive real plus minus. The defense um, is only 2.6 points per 100 possessions better with him on the floor, which is not exactly an, uh, an eye-opening, you know, sh- strong stat. Um, and I also want to see a little bit more from him, because in previous seasons he was never really regarded as this elite you know, potential defensive player of the year player. And now this season so far, he has been that in my opinion. So I put him at third because he's got the metrics and he's on a a really great defense. Um, But I want to see more from him. So that's why I have him as third. So I've got Paul George, you know, as my front runner and followed by Gobert and and Miles Turner. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I I look at that and it's pretty clear cut for me as well. I agree. I mean, Paul George is my guy. <laughs> I couldn't give for MVP, but definitely for defensive defense player of the year. I think just this two stats, um, players shooting just 41.8% against George, including 30% on threes. Like that alone, he's stifling in that in that regard. So I give him that. Now my thing is I, I put I think Draymond Green has had a resurgence on the defensive end as well. Yeah. Um and, and that was that was my guy who I have second on the list. I just think Gobert is there as well, but I just I put uh Draymond Green, just to be different, because I figured you're going with Gobert, and I want to, you know, have the same answers for too many of them. Uh, but I, I've watched the way he's been playing this year. He definitely said beforehand that this was what he was trying to get, or this was the race that he was, um, this was the award that he was trying to gun back for. And even though he's only missed a couple of games, that 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 is um, that is something that, uh, you know, he um, what's that word? Oh my goodness. I'm losing words. That is that is the award he's been going for, and the stats have at least shown it just a little bit. But Gobert's right up there for me. Um, Embiid as well as someone I think deserves consideration, uh, even though I'm looking at his block numbers now. Blocking still. I'm trying to get the advanced numbers here. But I had I had Embiid as well. And then – and this was – I guess it's not really a, a, a trendy pick. I mean we kind of just went over a few of these here. But what do you think about um, – Oh my goodness, I'm forgetting. Okay, so here, if I had to, if you had to rank between Draymond, George, Embiid, and and Gobert, between G- Draymond Green and and um Joel Embiid, are you giving him more to uh, Draymond Green? Uh, yeah, I think I would. Um, I think over the past like month or so, he's kind of turned it on. Um, and one thing that Green's case, you know, one thing we can make the, the case for Green is that the Warriors overall are 13th defensively. Um, but when, when Draymond Green's on the floor, the defensive rating is 103.2, which would comfortably be the best defense in the league. So that is a pretty compelling case. Obviously, we know when he's engaged, he can switch. He can, you know, kind of defend the rim. Um, just provides all his versatility. You know, he has the defensive, you know, the basketball, strong basketball IQ, the awareness, and things like that. But really, the case is when he is on the floor for the Warriors, they are the best defense in the league by a comfortable margin. That is a, making a, that's a pretty compelling case for defensive player of the year. 
definitely is. Definitely is. Yeah, I'm, I'm rooting for him to get that. And he's, I mean, I'm rooting for him just as much as George. I think George is, I like him better than Draymond. But, like, yeah, th- those, that's always, those are always interesting races, especially defensively. It really is. And defensively, it's, it's always one of the harder ones because, you know, there are there are a good amount of defensive advanced metrics, but it's still very hard for them to, quanti- to qu- you know, to quantify, you know, strong defensive play. It's really this award is probably the most uh, clear cut mix between eye test and metrics um, where you really have to watch these guys, you know, be beasts on the defensive end and then support it with strong defensive metrics because you know it's just so hard to really evaluate defense even with today's uh you know plethora of it you know advanced stats and you know traditional <laughs> stats you know and then the eye test so um it's definitely a, a tough award to pick um but where do you want to go next <sighs> what do you think about moving to some coaches yeah, let's let's uh. Well, I was gonna say let's take it off the floor, but the coaches are still on the floor, I guess technically. Yeah, I was um, thinking the same thing in my head, so I'm glad <laughs> you said it, not me. Um, who you got for your top three for coach of the year? All right, so I have, and this is definitely interesting, but this is just recently: Greg Popovich, Nick mm-hmm. Nurse, and my Budenholzer. And I'm in that order. I guess we would reverse it in terms of order. So. Yeah, I, I, I think, and I'm just going to give defend Pop real quick. Um, Spurs start of the season right in the middle of the pack. I mean, I do not expect deep playoff aspirations for them. They're still kind of the same team they were. They started 11-14, definitely had some tough losses, couldn't get any offense generated. Um, one of one of just a really bad deep shooting team. But then Coach Pop kind of started working his magic. The Spurs have been 14-6 and six since then. They've had the fifth-best offensive season, although they make literally – they're one of the last – teams in the league in terms of attempts or, or, or conversions from deep per game. They make 9.8. That's 24th. Now, they're number one as far as efficiency is concerned, but they're they're taking literally less than 10 a game. That's like 1998 numbers, really. Like 2000. Like, they're going back. And I think I want to give Popovich some, some uh, respect just for what he's doing on that end. So I need to make more of, a, of a, a defense for him. I think the other two coaches with Budenholzer and Nick Nurse we can talk about, but they kind of speak for themselves in their play. Um, so coaching. I'm just looking at the uh, cleaning the glass uh, shooting stats for, for, for the teams and the, the Spurs numbers are so funny to me that it's honestly they are. <laughs> so in terms of frequency, they are 30th in terms of frequency of shots at the rim, which is a shot that every team should want. Um, and then the 30th in frequency of three pointers, uh, including 28 from the corners uh and then they're first in frequency for short mid-rangers long mid-rangers and of course all mid-rangers um so they're 30th in the league in terms of frequency of what people would consider the best shots in today's nba the three three pointer and shots at the rim and then they're first in frequency for the most inefficient shot which is the mid-range shot and then you look at their percentages and they don't take a lot of threes or shots at the rim but they're they make everything. They make everything from all areas of the floor. They're sixth in field goal percentage at the rim. They are third in field goal percentage from mid-range. Um, and then they're first in three-point percentage from corner threes and non-corner threes. So they don't take a lot of the good modern shots, but they make what they take, basically, which sounded weird to say. But they literally – I mean, what was that doing <laughs> the Thunder? They started 14 of 14 from th- – Oh, yeah, ridiculous. 13 of 14 from three. It was ridiculous. You're right. When they take them – only only not smart shooter I see on that team really is Marco Bellinelli, and he is who he is. I mean, we already know what kind of shots <laughs> he's going to take, which is any shot, 
if it leaves his hand, it feels good to him, which is literally anything. But everyone else really sticks to their zone. DeMar DeRozan, LaMarcus Aldridge. You have smart shooters in the backcourt who know what they're doing. Yeah, it, it's, it's kind of really crazy. And I give Pop a lot of credit for that, for toughening up the defense just enough there while also getting them shots and staying true to the players he has. He hasn't attempted to change any of his personnel in any weird or crazy way. I mean, DeMar DeRozan isn't trying to make a resurgence for the three-point shot. I think he's averaging less than two a game attempted. Um, LaMarcus Aldridge is definitely staying in his lane, and they're generating the shots that they like to take as far as personnel is concerned, and they're converting at a high rate. So some of that is just on the players making their shots, but I give credit to Pop for putting them in a position where they can stay true to themselves and also produce because they're put in the position that's best for themselves. It's really incredible. I, I mean, I, I wouldn't say I love. I don't like watching the way they play because I just oh not I, at I, all. I like Sorry. the way I like modern teams. But I will say it's always interesting when a team like this comes along. And this was how the Timberwolves were last year, where they, the Timberwolves I think were were a top five offense with this kind of archaic shot chart. And the, and the Spurs right now have the sixth ranked offense per cleaning the glass. And again, I mentioned those. I mean, that is the most historic archaic shot distribution you could possibly get. Um, and they're still getting it done because they've got the best mid-range shooters in the league and they can they're very accurate on the shots that they take and you know they don't take a lot of those modern those good modern shots but they make what they take so um so that's your top three so what what, what's the top three in your order based on who's your front runner it would have to be mike budenholzer followed by nick nurse and and then and then pop and i give budenholzer the edge over um nurse because i feel like with the team already assembled i felt that they were going to be very good regardless um, and Nurse has obviously made some changes, and, and, and specifically, I like his adjustment with um, balancing Serge Ibaka, and I mean, he's injured, but um, Jonas Valanciunas as far as matchup-based more and being more reactionary um, as far as uh, a coaching standpoint is concerned, especially in that aspect. But I already like the talent that he already had at his disposal, especially with Kawhi Leonard and Danny Green and a deep team, and I figured that... Um, I mean, he's not. they're not playing... He's not exceeding my expectations. Like, with the roster that he had, I'm, I'm more impressed by Mike Budenholzer being able to do what he's done, even with Giannis, but also because he's been able to unlock so much more around him with the players he put there and changing their entire style of play, shooting more threes, unleashing the full Brook Lopez experience, and I think we're all better for it. And um, I think he's put Giannis in the best position to win MVP because of his coaching schemes and the way he's changed the Bucks. So Budenholzer first, then Nurse. So I also have Budenholzer. Um, I, I think it's honestly his award to lose. It's, he has got that narrative. They're going to probably win. Who oh God, they could, I mean, if they win 60 games, they might win, you know, almost close to like four, 20 games more than they did last year. I think they won like 42 or 43 last year off the top of my head. Actually, I can check. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I'm guessing. Um, <laughs> At I least have, your works. <laughs> so they won 40, they won 44 last year. So it, they're probably going to win upper fifties. They're going to at least have, you know, a 12, maybe 14, 15 game improvement, which is kind of like the rest. That's like automatic, the recipe for coach of the year. You got the narrative. It's all positive regular season, the way he's changed their style of play, the way he's got them to be elite on both ends of the floor, uh, second offensively, fourth defensively. I mean, just incredible what he's done, how he's modernized them and, and made everyone feel comfortable in their roles. And it's all great. Um, so I think it's his award to lose. Um, I have two candidates in my top three that you didn't mention, actually. Um, okay. Mike Malone is, I think, my second, my runner-up right now. Yeah. Um, a- it's mainly because the, the injuries. They had so many injuries, and and not only that, but 
their core players and their best players are still very young. And I know, you know, they've been in the league for a couple of years now. They went through a season last year where they missed the playoffs on the last night of the regular season. So, you know, they're kind of battle tested, but they're still young players. Um, and the fact that they're still they're second in the West, half game behind the Warriors for the number one seed. They've got a comfortable three game lead on the Thunder, who are the three seeds. So it looks like we're I mean, you know. Who knows? But at this point, I, I feel pretty comfortable in saying that the Warriors and Nuggets will be one, two in the conference in some order, which, you know, given their injuries, Will Barton, Isaiah Thomas hasn't played. Gary Harris went down. Paul Millsap went down. Um, you know, they were they were running Jokic and Murray and a bunch of you know solid role players for a long time. And they were winning a lot of games with that. So I have to give him a lot of credit. Um, and then I actually think I have Nate McMillan as, as my third. Um, and, you know, the Pacers are third in the in the east they're tied with the sixers um in the in the game's back column um but really it's it's just kind of how he's gotten a bunch of defensive improvement from a lot of his players like i mentioned like miles turner before the season was never really considered this defensive stalwart who could ever be in the running for defensive player of the year and here he is doing just that um i think bogdanovich is is having a great year and even solid on the defensive end they were able to win without oladipo which last year they were a complete um, tire fire without Oladipo. I think this Oladino. year. Oladino. <laughs> that, that sucked. I'm sorry. That sucked. <laughs> um, but this year they were actually able to withstand his absence. Um, and the, just the, the buy-in that he's got from his players, the improvement that he's got in these players, you know, having this team at, uh, to be, you know, the third ranked defense, their 15th offensively, which is, you know, bleh, but, uh, the third ranked defense <laughs> with this team is pretty impressive for me. Um, and then I've got to give a shout out to, I mean, Kenny Atkinson is going to, yes, he will not, yes. I highly doubt he ends up even in the top three of the official ballot at the end of the year. Of course, things could change, but I mean, what he's doing to get the Nets to, by the way, they won tonight for those who are listening to this, and they are actually over 500. Um, if you guys don't remember, the Nets, of course, they lost Karis LeVert to that scary injury, um, though thankfully he's going to be coming back sometime this season. Um, and... A couple games after that, they saw they fell and they were, you know, they fell down to eight and 18 at one point. Um, since they were fell to eight and 18, they actually have the best record in the league at 16 and five. Um, and you look at just like the culture he's created, how hard, how hard his players plan on a night to night basis, you know, and I think the style of play that he's, you know, he's all about that modern style of play, you know, basically opposite of what the Spurs are doing. Um, it's all being rewarded with success, which which is great to see for the franchise, great to see for him, great to see for the players. Um, again, I don't think he's not in my top three yet. He probably won't even make it into the top three of the official balloting at the end of the year, given how many strong candidates there are ahead of him. And, you know, if, if the Nets slip a little bit, then it's not going to be not that much of a story for him. But what he's done to turn this team around this season um, has been remarkable. And so I have to put him in there as probably like an honorary mention. Um, but I've got Budenholzer as my front runner, followed by Malone. And Nate McMillan. I like the fact that you included Nate McMillan. I thought that was an interesting pick. Um, Kenny Atkinson as well. I, I, Malone was in there for me. He really was. But I, I just won. I thought historically speaking, as well as the fact that I did not think much of San Antonio's roster, is why I put Pop where I did. But yeah, that that was that was a really good list. And there's a bunch of viable candidates for there. I think even more so than MVP and um, DPOY, where that kind of gets you know you get your top three and then it kind of just sets in order from there. Yeah, yeah, because you know, I didn't even you mentioned Nick Nurse. I didn't mention him, of course. Quality candidate there. Um, you know, who else do we got? I mean, see, before this yeah. thunder, before this recent thunder stretch, I was gonna, you know, you could have mentioned Billy Donovan. Yeah, you know, they're kind I was of thinking about it. Bleh. 
Um, the Clippers have kind of fallen off, so maybe you know they've lost four straight. They're, they're the eighth seed right now, so you know Doc's not looking too hot as a candidate. I still think you can still mention Dave Yeager for Sacramento. The fact that they're still over 500 at this point in the season um, and just one in a game, one in a game, one and a half games back of the playoffs at this point. I mean that we're past the halfway point. I think it still makes him a worthy mention as a candidate. So I think. You know, at the quarter season, of course, when we do quarter season awards, it's so hard because there's such a small sample. Um, there were so many candidates. I think a couple of them have fallen off, like a Doc, like maybe like a Billy Donovan. Um, and then I think there are a couple of other candidates might have even emerged a little bit more. So it'll be interesting to see. I definitely think that this could be – it's probably – it's not the sexiest award by any means, but it's, it arguably could be the, one of the most competitive, if not the most competitive, um, of all the awards. Oh, yeah. No, Definitely. Do you want to get to one that's a little bit less competitive, but could still be interesting, depending on what you pick? Uh, which one are we? Which one are we talking about here? <laughs> oh, totally up to you. That's what I say, depending on what you pick, because uh, I don't want the pressure of this next one. We kind of did a great little job here with the coaching. <laughs> All right, uh, let's go. So there are two awards. I don't. I don't. I had no trouble, you know, picking my 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 front runner at the moment um, with like no hesitation. So rookie of the year. Oh um, yeah. It's Luca, obviously. Um, what? <laughs> um, but really, even obviously in the context of him being a rookie, it's incredible. But what he's just doing, like as a like player, not even as a rookie, is honestly insane. I mean, he's the best player on a team that's hovering around 500. You know, they had fallen down a little bit. Um, you know, the, the four games under now, they've lost two straight. But what he's doing, he has a huge offensive burden for, especially for a rookie, and he's he's really come through. I mean, he's averaging. Over 20 points a game, 6.7 rebounds, 5.1 assists, um, and he's got a solid, you know, 56% true shooting percentage, which is basically around league average. Um, given the load that he's had and the fact that he's a rookie, um, that's incredibly impressive. And the fact that they, the Mavericks are, you know, for the most part, a competitive team. Um, they're not making the playoffs. They're four games back of the eight seed, but they were ba- they basically been five around 500 the entire half point of the season so far. And for him to be doing that, leading them to that success with these statistical numbers is, you know, makes him a clear front runner for me. Um, and then to, to fill out my, my final top two or top three, it's uh, Jaron Jackson in second and then DeAndre Ayton in third. And I think Ayton is, is a, a closer to Jackson than most would have it or most would think. Um, you know, Jackson obviously showcasing that defensive potential um, and Ayton is posting, you know, these really impressive towning stats. He's got, you know, um, uh you know, he's got this big role and he's kind of like you know, this unstoppable force offensively and doesn't really do much defensively. And Jackson's kind of like a little bit of the opposite way. He's really showing more defensive potential. Um, and, you know, they're on off numbers and, you know, the net ratings aren't, it's not everything. You know, Jackson is plus 4.4 points per 100 possessions and Aiton is plus 1.6. Um, but I do think, you know, I, I think Aiton has been what I expected him to be. Um, and Jackson has kind of been what I expected him to be. But I think Aiton is a little bit closer to Jackson than most would think, you know, given how, you know, he's been a really good scorer and he's you know, he's putting up these, you know, good counting stats and, you know, some of the advanced metrics like him, some of them, you know, don't like him that much. Um, I think what tends to happen, especially when you get past Doncic and, and kind of debate Jackson and Aiton, I think what happens in that discussion is that people will just naturally include who they think is going to be the better player. Um, when you debate Aiton and, and Jaron Jackson um, and, you know, I think Jackson would be the better player, but I'm, I, I kind of, and realizing that Aiton, I think, is a little bit closer to Jackson in this in this specific rookie of the year race than many would say. Though I think Jackson will still end up being the better player overall. We're obviously only talking about this year's rookie of the year race, so I think Aiton is 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 a close third to J- to Jackson second, and Doncic is the clear front runner. 
Yeah, I mean, it was really those same three in that exact same order, so this is going to be kind of boring for me, not really too much to mention there. Um, Doncic just has only tightened that grasp on Rookie of the Year. And, I mean, the legend of Luka, can, can we call it that? Could that be a possible TV show or maybe <laughs> something the jump takes as a segment from the legend of Luka? Uh, I like it, but the point is he's already one part Rookie of the Year, one part, like, franchise player already, just taking over in games, dominating when, it, when it's time to do that, leading all rookies in scoring, um, I mean, just, just the fact that you have a team in the Mavs that is largely a veteran team and they're looking to Luka, you know, for that leadership and, and, and giving him the ball and saying, listen, take take over for us down the stretch, kid. Like, that means a lot, just story-wise, story narrative-wise, but also production-wise and stat-wise. I think his crunch time numbers are just insane. And that is why, I mean, I went from being all Team 8, and I still am. I, I like DeAndre. Like you said, he's what I expected. I thought he would put up a strong... Um, Double-double, I did not think that he would be as bad as he's been on defense. I did think he'd shoot a lot more threes. I don't know why. Um, You know, more or less, he's been what he is. He can rack up a double-double in his sleep. I like the way he plays. There's still room for growth, all that good stuff. But he's just he's even hold a dime to Luka. And I think in, the, in between those two players, you have Jaron Jackson, who has been productive, scoring more as far as minutes and pace compared to Aiden, and then um, uh, efficient as far as three-point is concerned as well. Um, he... Aiden has superior rebounding, but, I mean, Jackson's kind of right over there, uh, especially on the defensive end. It's light years ahead, to quote a Warriors mm-hmm. reference. Um, And so, yeah, not really too much out of there. I just agree. Luka's, Luka has it. If there did come to to a second place, to be Jaron Jackson, then DeAndre Aiden. To extend that further, I'd like the way Trey Young's played as well. I mean, this rookie class so far, it's still – there's been some good pieces. I mean, it's far and away Luka and then the rest of the field – but um, if we were to go, like, top 10 rookies, that'd be interesting. Not that we're going to do that. I'm just saying, you know, it, it, the race is pretty much in hand on that one. It's in the bag. Yeah. I mean, Luka has been, I think, a little bit better than I expected. But then I think almost everyone else has kind of been a, what I expected overall. Like, I didn't expect Trey to shoot this poorly on threes. But I think the numbers that he's putting up and the passing and stuff has been what I expected. I think Marvin Bagley's kind of having a quiet, you know, a nice solid rookie year, um, and he won't even, you know, make the top three. Maybe might not even make the top four of people's ballots, um, which is a shame. You know, there this is a solid rookie class. And one last thing I will mention is that, you know, unfortunately for Jaron, um, he got drafted to a team that was trying to win this year, and you know now they've fallen off. I mean now the Grizzlies oh, are down to 19 and 26, which is which which could be which I think is going to be a blessing in disguise for, for Jackson's development this year and just like the team's focus on developing him because there were moments early in the season where he would not get the playing time down the stretch of games because they wanted they needed to win. Um, but, of course, for a rookie and for you know a top prospect like him, those are the minutes that are great for his development. Now that they're losing, you know, he'll probably get more playing time and he'll get more crunch time minutes, and that, that'll be really good for them, and especially if – there was the rumor today, the report that Marcus Gasol and Mike Conley met with ownership, so maybe there could be some kind of selling going on going on in Memphis, and that would open up more playing time for Jaron. But uh, that is one thing. Like unlike the Mavericks and the Suns, who just said, you know, Luca here, take the keys and run here, DeAndre. You know, you're going to get a big role to start off. Just go ahead and do it because we're going to be bad anyways. Um, though the Mavericks have, you know, turned out to be good or solid, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. The Grizzlies were like, we're going to win. Jaron, you'll play, you know, some minutes here, some minutes there, but you won't get as much development time when you need it, and you won't play, you know, crunch time when you need it and stuff like that. So I think the Grizzlies falling off might actually be a huge blessing in disguise for Jaron Jackson's development this year. Oh, definitely. He's going to get a lot more run. That's big. And I think giving him those minutes really force-feeding him. He's had time to grow alongside 
Mark Gasol and get some tutelage there. But yeah, depending on what future moves the Grizzlies make, now it's time to take what you learn and run with it, and maybe he can make some some headway and do some damage in the race. Not that he's going to win it, but at least you know have a stronger year than he's already been having. Yeah, so let's move on to, I guess, let's just do the easier awards right now and, and end with, I think, one of the more interesting ones at the end. So yep. let's, let's, just move on. let's just move on with, with uh, Most Improved. Um, again, this was an award that I, I had very little hesitation to pick Pascal Siakam, who I still, who I had at the quarter season awards well. Um, you know, he just continues to kind of improve, you know, slash impress, I guess, across the board. Um, basically, I think he has career highs in nearly every single traditional and advanced stat. Um, and he's playing a key role on a really, really good team. Um, and to round out my top three, I had De'Aaron Fox second and Monte Morris third. Um, now, a lot of people, I think, I've seen a lot of people have Siakam. I've seen a lot of people have Fox as their front runner. And the thing with me, and this is just a natural preference, so I, I totally understand that people, you know, think otherwise. But for me, when I see sophomore players improve, uh, it's almost like too expected for me to like reward them with this most improved player of the year I award. Totally agree. Um, now Fox Completely. is in a, in an interesting case where his, his progression has been like a whole nother level, uh, like a progress. Like he's made two years of progression, I think in, in one season, um, which kind of makes it more interesting. That's why I actually have him at second. Cause his progression has been so much better and higher than I expected it would be in his sophomore year that I have to just like mention him. Cause he's been that good. You know, he's been the driving force on a Kings team. That's actually over 500. Um, and then, you know, Monte Morris, you know, I mentioned that Isaiah Thomas just hasn't played and the whole that they really didn't know what they were going to have, you know, for backup point guard before Thomas came back. And Monte Morris just stepped up and was like, you know what, I'm going to be solid as a rock, never going to turn the ball over. Um, this is the guy I don't really watch college basketball, but, you know, I yeah. was listening that he had set the NCAA record for assist to turnover ratio. He basically just never turns the ball over. And that's continued in the NBA. He's hitting his shots developing chemistry with guys like Jokic and he's just been solid and all around, you know, really solid, good start spot starter and backup point guard. Um, so I've got Siakam front runner followed by Fox and Monte Morris. I mean, you could probably sit down and think of like a bunch of other candidates, but these are my top three. Yeah, I had the same. I didn't have Monte Morris. I did have Pascal as my leader. Um, I did have Darren Fox second, John Collins. I thought of, um, Justice Winslow, especially at the new point guard spot he's been playing. I actually had Derrick Rose in there, um, Bryn Forbes from San Antonio. That that was really my list. I couldn't really narrow it down. Um, I felt weird. I had Derrick Rose in my top three for just other reasons, but I definitely do think the way he'd been playing, uh, just I thought he was cooked. I really did. As a player, I thought he was pretty much done. You know, his stint in Cleveland before the bounce back in Minnesota has been really been consistent, shooting career best from three. Um, for just productive on that end, being constant kind of uh, offense support for Minnesota and really kind of reinventing himself in that way. So I gave a lot of credit to him. Um, De'Aaron Fox, same thing. I kind of feel like a sophomore, I don't know, if you improve, that's great. I do believe in a sophomore slump, but at the same time, I also think if you do improve, guess what? Your rookie has a better feel for the NBA game. You're going to make some strides in some direction, especially on your rookie year, which isn't going to be like lighting the world on fire. So I didn't give a whole lot of credit to De'Aaron, but as the main man on the team that has made just a whole lot of improvement across the board, I had to give him his due for that. And then last, he was kind of tied for me between um, – I guess it wasn't tied because I just named Pascal Siakam and then De'Aaron Fox and then Derrick Rose. But fourth place and kind of able to take overtake uh, Rose at three for me was uh, Justice Winslow and, and, and Bryn Forbes. 
because Brent yeah. Ford's been pressed into a, a more uh, more of an important role for San Antonio with all the guards being down, and then obviously Justice Winslow just making more of a just making more of a improvement across the board, especially from a facilitating standpoint and sh- and shooting the three. Yeah, Winslow. You know, I, I love when these experiments happen out of necessity. When like the team just has no one else to go to as like a primary ball handler, and they just say, you know, Justice Winslow, you're basically our point guard. Um, it's been actually working so far for him. Um, <laughs> and yeah, Bryn Forms is a nice candidate. You know, the Rose thing is interesting for me because obviously, if you looked at Rose's like past, oh God, I don't know, three seasons maybe, or you know, two and a half seasons. Yep. The way his he he. You look at his numbers and you just watch him play and it's like, wow, this guy's improved. But then you you remember like, well, wait a minute, this was a former MVP, so has he really improved? His, you know, it's like a weird like. It's uh, a weird dichotomy. Yeah, that it's exactly the word because really what Rose's season is all about is absurd out of nowhere three point shooting. Um, this is a guy who's a career 31% shooter from three, who's shooting almost 46% this year. Like that comes out of nowhere. And he obviously, there were reports that he worked on his shot a lot over the summer and it's, it's clearly paying off. But I mean, that is absurd. Um, you know, oh, look, I mean, look, oh, sorry. If I could interrupt you just from 2015 with the bulls, 29%, 2016 with the Knicks, 21%, 2017 with the Cavs, 25%. And then he got split twenty um sixteen percent with the wolves um at the end of last year all the way to forty four. Like where does that? I mean that that's such an incredible <laughs> turnaround. If you wanted to, there should be like a separate award for him, just like most improved skill, and he wins that for shooting <laughs> because skill set. Yeah, this is a guy who could not shoot a three. Um, he took a lot, you know, a couple years ago. He you know twenty fourteen fifteen he took five point three per game. He only shot twenty eight percent. Um, he, you know, he was like Westbrook, Westbrook level three point oh, shooting before gosh. Westbrook started doing this. Um, but all of a sudden he's shooting threes, which of course provides value for his game. You know, he's back. He's, he stayed healthy. He's kind of back getting to the rim. I'm just going to look at his uh, shooting numbers. Yeah. So he's back being, you know, actually he's besides, uh, yeah, last season, um, obviously it was a limited sample. He only played 25 games. Um, he, if you don't count that season, uh, this year he's shooting 64% from within three feet of the rim, which is you know basically around the rim. Uh, he's a career 57% shooter from that area. Um, again, he, he's shooting above his career averages on you know long twos. Uh, obviously, I mentioned career way way above the career average of three. So really, his season is all about um, out of nowhere impressive improvements in terms of his shooting percentages from from nearly everywhere on the floor. And so he's a player that. I think it's it's hard to say he's on this award because the I don't know if he really improved his game naturally. I think shooting is obviously part of the game, but then you know this would be an interesting situation to watch. You know, at the end of the season when we do our end of year awards, if Rose's shooting falls off, I, there's no way he's going to be on this list because I don't think the other parts of his game have improved. You know, per se. Oh yeah, no. If it wasn't for the three point shooting, um, I would give a little credit to the assist. It's the most assists he's had in five years per game. So that's something as well. But that's that alone is not enough to help you with um, most improved. And I don't even think the value is that big on that end either. Aside from the three point shooting, that's really the main factor with this one for him. But I mean, eighteen three and five looks good. You know what I mean? It, it doesn't look good when you're comparing the gaudy MVP stats of you know twenty one four and eight. Like, wow, different time. But anyway, it seems weird saying those numbers, thinking that the MVP was one with those numbers. But the point I'm trying to say is obviously, uh, I mean, not, tw- I'm, yeah, I said the right, the 2010, yeah, the 25, uh, 4, and 7. But the point being, it, it, it's kind of weird to say, but you're right, without three point shooting, yeah, he doesn't be out there running entirely. That's like the one improvement added value, not only to this team, 
for most improved because he can actually shoot the ball. But yeah, like you said, most improved skill set. That single-handedly is kind of at his value because he's still getting to the rim and finishing better, yes. But without that three-point shooting, I think it'd be a totally different year for Derek. It'd be another uh, last year. Yeah, so you, wait, you mean to tell me that an MVP won the award without averaging, you know, 35 points per game or, or near triple-double or something like that? Uh, right there is such a perfect, uh, uh, not reflection, encapsulation, encapsulation of what the more possessions and emphasis on three-point shooting has done to stats where the MVP this year is either going to be a guy averaging like 28, 13, and 6 or a guy averaging over 35 points per game. Uh, like that is such a great reflection on how much our, you know, the stats have changed, you know, because we're talking about MVPs only uh, and looking how the stats have changed from, from year to year and MVP level performances is, is really honest. It's kind of funny. It's also kind of eye opening. Yeah. I was, as I was saying, I'm looking at these numbers. I'm like, wow, so underwhelming. You're right. Cause I'm thinking, <laughs> okay, you had to have one of the top four seeds. No, no, no less than four. I want to see some massive numbers, a major jump in one area. Your supported cast has to be at least top notch or just butt ugly awful so that you can lift them up to the top. Yeah. There's so many additional factors. You're right. I mean, it's almost like going through a time capsule in NBA history. And this is not even what, not even 10 years ago. Yeah. It's, it's really crazy. And who knows, who knows who, the person winning MVP 10 years from now, what, 40 points a game at this point? Exactly. <laughs> it's ridiculous. But uh, all right, let's get to – I honestly think six men of the year, again, is not one of these – I don't really think it's one of these like sexy awards. Um, but I think it's – this year is, is very interesting to me. Um, and maybe it's because, you know, I'm a nerd, an NBA nerd who just nerd. loves diverting into these, you know, weird awards. Uh, that's not a weird award. But, you know, so six men of the year, I think I, – I don't even know I'd say it's one of the most, you know – contested awards like when you look at a lot of these people's a lot of the ballots that you'll read um a lot of people have the same front runner or at least like a similar top three and i'm not going anywhere out of ordinary with my top three of Let's uh, get it. i'm not putting it in order i'm not i'm going to reveal that later uh sabonis montrez harrell and spencer dinwiddie are my top three um i just want to run through the cases that all these players have i mean sabonis has been a monster like he's just been he's been feasting um as a, as a backup big 15 points 9.6 rebounds per game almost three assists per game um you know really strong efficiency numbers uh you know he hasn't been a bad defense you know he provides energy he's got this kind of nastiness to him you know he's obviously got the post moves he can distribute the ball as a big man um and you know the advanced stats really like him um a lot of the advanced stats you know like a lot of big men um so he, that's his case. And Montrez Hell is in a similar way. Obviously, very different players. Montrez is averaging 16 points per game, uh, nearly seven rebounds, a little bit under two assists per game, um, almost a block more per game. He's this guy who's going to come in there, bring in the energy, you know, bring in the athleticism, um, not going to really wow you with post moves. You know, whenever he scores in the post, it's usually pretty ugly. Um, but he's going to provide the energy, you know, the hustle. He's undersized, which kind of hurts on the glass um, and hurts him a little bit defensively. Um, but then again, Sabonis isn't exactly this towering center who's going to defend the rim at an elite rate. So it's funny how these two big men who are, you know, the top, probably the top two candidates um, are similar in the ways that they provide more. I think they provide more value on the offensive end. Um, they're not really clear positives defensively, but they're not, you know, clear negatives. They're kind of these energy guys off, off, off the bench. Uh, and then you get to Spencer Dinwiddie, um, who is more, you know, the six man of the year award has, you know, typically gone to guards that score off the bench for good teams. That's basically what it's been for a while. 
Um, and you look at Dimity, who's number one in minutes played off the bench. And basically, he has, you know, a 60% true shooting on the highest usage of all these three players in my top three. He's got a 25% usage. He's basically at 60% true shooting, um, which, is, which is really good. Um, and I think he's, you know, he's probably the best offensive player on the team, on the Nets. And, you know, dare I say he's the best overall player on the Nets. I mean, just the value he's been providing for them. You know, Over Russell? Russell, oh, Russell stepped kidding. it up. Um, Russell stepped up and actually didn't when he went through a slump, you know, recently, I think he's broken out of it. Anyone who saw that end of that Rockets Nets game, which is insane, knows that Dinwiddie broke out of that slump in a major, major way. Um, but yeah, Russell stepped it up and Dinwiddie slumped. So they they were providing equal value. But I think overall, if you ask me, just like, who's the best player on the Nets, I think I'd still choose Spencer Dinwiddie, um, for this season. Um, and he, you know, oftentimes he'll close games as the main guy with the ball in his hands. Um, and then you look at the team. Six December, since December 6th, uh, I mentioned this earlier, when they were 8-18, eight and 18, the Nets have had the ninth-ranked offense. Of course, they have the best record in the league at that time. So it wouldn't be, like, at the quarter point of the season, rewarding Dinwiddie with the with six-man of the year would have been rewarding a player on a bad, you know, non-playoff team with these stats. But now that the team is over 500 and, you know, the sixth seed in the East, I know it's obviously the East and it's weak um, towards the bottom of the standings, you're not really rewarding that that kind of player putting up empty stats, for for, for example. And, you know, I, I think, um, you know, Sabonis and Harrell are obviously on winning teams, um, though the Clippers aren't exactly that much farther ahead than the Nets at this point. Um, I think Dinwiddie's, you know, actual role off the bench just feels more important or valuable for, for his team. Um, you know, maybe that's just a personal thing. I just think that the Nets, what he does for them is just so crucial for them, you know, at the, at the end of games, he had a go-ahead shot today um, against the Magic under a minute left and actually gave him the lead for, you know, such shots. He's leading the league in go-ahead shots or shots to tie the game, you know, in crunch time, I believe, or, you know, within a, a minute or two left, um, which proves his value at the end of the game. So I think – and one more thing. I think that, you know, I feel like I'm rambling, but I, I sometimes no, think that on. for big men – and this, I don't know if it's like a personal thing or just, you know, just naturally just watching the game. It feels like it's a little bit easier to get production from big men and especially backup bigs to put up numbers. Like, I feel like it's a little bit easier for a guy like Sabonis to put up these nice, impressive numbers coming off the bench. Um, same thing for Harold too. Like they go up against starters, uh, you know, a lot of the time, but a lot of their minutes do come against backups. And not only do I feel like it's easier to get production from big men in general in the league, like to just get, you know, production on a minimum contract from a big man versus, you know, production, you know, strong guard play like Dinwiddie's providing. Um, overall, I, I, in going into all of that, I think, you know, and maybe a little bit of recency bias given Dinwiddie's performance in that comeback win over the Rockets and how he kind of helped them lead, you know, him and Russell led them back against the Magic and what they've been doing over the past month. I have got Spencer Dinwiddie as my front runner for six man of the year. You know, it's funny. I can't even really argue with you too much against that, which is sad, especially since my three are right up there with you. Uh, Dinwiddie, Sabanis, and Harold in that order. Lou Williams is also there, although injuries, you know, I've been there. And then I put, again, ironically, I put Derrick Rose. And no, not, I have nothing really like going for him, but you do have to admit that the offensive production, especially the three-point shooter, it wasn't expected, and it has been a boon for that Minnesota offense coming off the bench, having someone reliable who's putting up 18. But we already talked about him last segment, so not going to spend too much time there. In fact, you kind of talk about everyone really, really well. I don't really want to repeat <laughs> anything you said, but yeah, recency bias, and I have to go to Spencer. That, that, that performance, you know, coming down to stretching in Houston was just 
was just wow. I mean, that was big. And and Sabonis has been definitely continuing what he did last year as far as um, just humming along offensively and defensively. And has been playing. Indiana has been obviously flourishing with him on the court. Um, his 15.2 points, 9.7 rebounds, and three assists per game with a plus six rating is nothing to be to to laugh at at all. I mean, that's that's really good. And then Montrezl Harrell, just ferocious, that tenaciousness. Everything that he brought in college that he's brought to the NBA is critical to just the Clippers being who they are as a team. And his production there has been just part of their renaissance. I mean, the numbers don't even put the half of it. I still remember, um, what, was it two weeks ago or about a week ago? against Charlotte, 23 points, 11 rebounds, 5 assists, 2 steals, basically everywhere all over the floor. And that type of production cannot be overstated, especially for someone who wasn't really thought of much when drafted other than like an energy big with some rebounding and, and, you know, some stuff on that end. So all that to say I have the exact same order that you have, but uh, I thought I would just try to add my own little thoughts there. Yeah, and for this award, I think a lot of, you know, maybe I guess some of my personal preference of, you know, what I guess sometimes I look for in a six-man of the year and, maybe Dinwiddie's overall importance for the Nets. You know, obviously, Harrell, you know, has been the best big man for the Clippers, so I'm not going to say he's not important to their team. And Sabonis has been – I mean, you, you could make a case that Sabonis has been, you know, the second, maybe the third best player on the Pacers of a really good Pacers team. Um, and, again, you look at all – you look at, like, you pull up these three players, you know, and you look at the advanced stats and comparing them, and all almost all the advanced stats favor the two big men, you know, in one shape. I mean, one, you know, one way or another, you know, Harold leads in some of them, Sabonis leads in others. Um, so, you know, and, you know, the net ratings, you know, Harold has the strongest net rating at plus 4.8. You know, Sabonis is a, a plus one and then Dinwiddie's a minus three, which is, you know, some flukiness there because Dinwiddie's, you know, good when, when Russell's not with him. But Dinwiddie plus Russell together is bad, you know, which is not a good sign for the Nets. But I think I think this a, a good amount of this also has a lot of eye tests just watching the games and watching Dinwiddie, you know, be the guy with the ball in his hands to win these games down the stretch, you know, of crunch time or just, you know, making maybe it's a guy leading the comeback, hitting all the shots, leading the comeback versus, you know, is Sabonis, you know, really on the floor for all these, you know, crunch time moments for the Pacers because he's not, you know, Turner is the better big defensive big man. Thaddeus Young is a better defensive option than Sabonis. That's basically their front court. Harrell often plays a lot of games on the stretch for the Clippers, but that's because you don't want to play the corpse of, of Marcin Gortat or Boban. Um, you can't really play him. Uh, so, you know, the fact that Dinwiddie's like the guy on What's a team that's been so well. I'm sorry. <laughs> Had a laugh. Okay. Continue. <laughs> um, the fact that Dinwiddie's been, you know, the guy for the Nets, it, it just automatically bleeds into, you know, my uh, rankings for this award because that's what this award, you know, is to me. These big men – are very important and very valuable for their teams. But the fact that Dinwiddie is often the guy for the Nets be coming off the bench, you know, you really can't say that for any anybody else run in the running for six-man of the year. I mean, these guys put up numbers, but Dinwiddie, you know, puts up really nice numbers, especially counting stats, um, and, you know, often has the ball in his hands, making things happen for a team that's really turned their season around. Yeah, no argument there. He has to be the guy. All right. Um, I think, yeah, we hit on all. Oh, no, we did not. Uh, we have to touch on executive of the year. I know everyone's favorite award. Um, oh, wow. I still got Masai Ujiri. Um, you know, I, not much has changed from my analysis from the quarter season award. Um, you know, the Kawhi trade has obviously been awesome. Danny, the Danny Green edition is still great. Um, last time I checked, he had still had a, a net rating over 20 plus 21. <laughs> um, so that's <laughs> ridiculous. 
Um, and again, you know, if they don't resign Kawhi, they've kind of jump started a rebuild. Um, they've got, you know, probably the best chance, one of the best chances in the East to make the finals, and they match up really well with Golden State. And if they do make the finals, they can just see what happens in that series. Maybe that gets, you know, maybe that gets Kawhi to resign. Uh, and in which case, you know, great. They're locked in. They're locked into being a really good team for a while. Maybe he still leaves for L.A. or something like that. And then they jumpstart a rebuild by selling off, you know, maybe a Kyle Lowry. They maybe trade like a guy like an Ibaka. They just trade their veterans and they go for a rebuild. So it's still Messiah Jiri. Um, I think John Horst in Milwaukee is is my runner up. I don't really actually have a top three for this. I only really have a top two. Um, he is the guy who is in charge of, you know, we all think, oh, Budenholzer was available. Well, you know, that doesn't take a genius to sign him. Well, he still made the move to sign Bud. And that's obviously worked out. The signing of Brook Lopez, I think, was the steal of free agency. Um, I like the trade that they made in season to dump their their money um, for Della Vadova and John Henson to get you know George Hill. Um, even some of their minimum you know pickups that you know, they had Pat Connaughton at the end of free agency. He's been pretty solid in his role. Um, Ilya Silver has been solid so far this year, though I don't really love that contract because it has another I think it has another year and then it's a team option. Um, that's been kind of bleh so far, but. Overall, I think John Horst would be my my runner-up. So I've got Messiah Jerry still as a clear, clear, clear front runner, and then John Horst. Yeah, I actually have Messiah Jerry. No surprise there as top. Um, my second one though is actually the team of Rob Palinka and Magic Johnson. No, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, my second is actually Sam Presti. Uh, I I like the moves he's made. Um, for one, getting Paul George to re-sign OKC cannot, absolutely cannot be overstated. Just what it means to the franchise, just what it means between, you know, um, being able to still reasonably, viably contend with maybe a shooter or two away um, to having to worry about rebuilding with Russell Westbrook there and the mass extension and what does that do. All of that being changed and not being able to happen if Paul George wasn't re-signed on a great deal as well for a number of years. So that's one. Also, somehow getting rid of Carmelo Anthony and his contract and coming up with Dennis Schroeder, who's been playing very well for him off the bench, starting in spots, has also been big. Um, prudent signings like Abdul Nader, who no one really saw really even being a part. I, I know I didn't as far as um, being a huge part of OKC. And he's come through in the clutch recently, making some nice pieces around the ends to kind of fill this team out. Uh, Nerlens Noel being a great signing for them as well. I, I think Sam Presti made the one big move he had to make, which was really just retaining one of the key free agents out this past year, and then making the moves in the margins to help out. So, I mean, uh, Russell Westbrook's play be doggone, you know, the slump they just had recently also being something totally different. But you wouldn't even have Paul George even in the running for an MVP race if he wasn't even on. I mean, you'd have him in the running, but what would that do for OKC if he wasn't in OKC? You know what I mean? Like, bring him back. And, and having that second marquee star to play across, um, to play alongside Russell Westbrook with these pieces here, I, I give Presti a lot of credit for that. Great offseason, and that's why he'd be my second year, or second to that. Yeah, he, he's definitely a nice honorable mention. And th- there's another guy who, because this award is done every year, which, again, one of the things that frustrates me the most is that this award is given out every single year when executives are in charge of making plans and executing plans that are for multiple years it makes no sense that you want to do like every five what would you do uh, i probably would do it every like three? at least every two but you know every three would be the most ideal but the, the the league probably wants to you know make sure they give out awards on a regular basis so it would probably be every two but just giving it out every year just seems like short-sighted like obviously there are 
they're like Masai Ujiri had a great offseason. Um, and, you know, he deserves to be praised for that. But let's look at like Sean Marks should be in the running for an extended coach, uh, extended executive of the year run. Like, let's say the Nets uh, and this could still happen, like the Nets sign a, a big free agent this this upcoming summer and be develop into a top four, top five seed. You know, sure, he might win the award, but it'll be because of the work that he had put in you know, when he started in 2016 up until this upcoming free agency, like that all matters because this offseason, for example, he made no flashy moves, right? Their offseason consisted of they signed Ed Davis, who's been the best rebounder in the league, um, you know, not by he doesn't lead the league in rebounds, but he leads the league in offensive rebound percentage and total rebound percentage. You know, if you've started, you probably will lead in the league in rebounds. Um, Shabazz Napier, who's been filling in great as a kind of third slash fourth guard, depending on how healthy they are. Trevion Graham just came back from injury, had an awesome game against the Rockets to help them win that game. They traded for Jared Dudley. A lot of people forget that they traded. Um, they took on Darrell Arthur from the in the Nuggets deal that got them a first-round pick, and then they used Arthur to trade for Dudley, who has been you know helping them as a veteran both on and off the floor. And then drafting Rodion's Kuruks at pick 40 looks like a really big steal of, of the draft. Um, so, of course, none of those moves are going to get him uh, executive of the year but when you consider the fact that those are supporting players that are leading them to a playoff spot right this season and um they'll setting they're set up to attract a star free agent this summer if they can somehow dump alan Crabb's contract they could somehow create space to get two star players but i doubt that's going to happen um and, and you know the nets depth and and their bench you know they have I think they have the best bench in the league in terms of, you know, points per game created from their bench players. Um, that's mainly a result of their offseason moves this past summer. Um, and is a big reason why they're, you know, playing still, you know, playing really well without Karis Levert, who's their best player. And, you know, Alan Krav's been out for like a month now. Rondé Hollis Jefferson missed time. Jerry Dudley's out now. Um, so listen, I mean, I get it. A lot of these moves happened over, you know, the past two seasons, basically since he's got there, right? Trading for Russell, drafting Jared Allen, adding Dinwiddie off the street, adding Joe Harris off the street. Like, <laughs> these are all setting him up. <laughs> That's a great visualization. Hey, Joe, you want to play for us? Come on. Get I mean, come on. <laughs> exactly. Um, but really, that's why I would love this award to be given out, you know, every two to three years. So, sure, Marks might win the award next season because they somehow get a star free agent and turn into a really good playoff team. But they only got that star free agent based on the moves he had made since he got there in 2016. Yeah, I, I can't argue with that. And, and if you did that, that does make more sense because that steady building to finally get a finished product, especially for an executive of the year award, would be more fulfilling. Because you're right, one eye is always looking at the immediate roster and what you have there, and one eye is always looking to the future. Even with the Warriors, you're building now, you're making moves now, but you're also looking at the extensions and different moves. Um, teams, I mean, look, we'll look back at Rob Palenka and Matt Johnson, like, wow, they were ahead of their time for signing Beasley and Rondo and Lance Stevenson <laughs> right now. I mean, <laughs> you never know. But no, on a real, on a real, I definitely understand exactly what you're saying. Yeah, because, I mean, everyone talks about you. Coach of the year makes sense, right? Because each year is a different coaching job. But exactly. executive of the year, if you're staying your job, your job is to plan out, of course, for this season, right? You're building a team to win this season, or in some cases, tank for a season. But then you're also saying, all right, if we make this move, you know, these like these teams tr signing players, like the, the length of the contract, how much money to give them. We have to, oh, we need to make sure we have our cap space open here or we drafted this player here in the second round. He's not going to develop us for us until two years later and he's going to be a starter for us. Like executives, you know, GMs, whatever you want to call their titles, they obviously are focused on the present, but they always, like you said, always have an eye on the future, which, you know, kind of defeats the purpose of giving them an award every single year. 
Yeah, exactly. He kind of does, especially with one like as long term as that. I agree. Yeah. So enough ranting. Um, but yeah, that'll wrap it up for our midseason awards. Um, and uh, we will be back. Um, we might be doing. We have, Corp and I have have to figure it out what we're going to do around the trade deadline. We'll probably do something an episode before with some kind of fun little preview of it. Then of course we'll be providing analysis of, of all the trades that happen afterwards. Um, so definitely be following us on Twitter. Again, you can follow me on Twitter at Eric Spiros MBA, which will you'll get a lot of uh, Nets content now that I'm covering them for Hoops Habit. Um, follow the site on Twitter at the 94 underscore. Check out the site at the94feet.com. We've had some nice content posted over the past couple of days. Um, and then Corbin, of course, you can throw out where everyone can interact with you. Oh, at Corbin Ford NBA. I finally started to do a little more tweeting on that end. Aside from that, really just at the 94 underscore. Um, and yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Uh, it's going to be excited to see what we do around Trader Line Time. I'm really hoping for some good content there. So like you said, Eric, we're going to have a good conversation. But uh, that's all, folks. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Follow us on, on all our social platforms. You'll get all of our written content our podcast you can check out the morning shoot around if you want some daily podcast consumption um and yeah everyone have a great week of watching nba basketball take care all right so